Uh, we're going to finish up First John today. Um, I think this is the 16th yeah, sermon in there. No, didn't wasn't quite sure where we would be with this when we started it. Uh, it's a, a challenging, a little more, it's a little more challenging than I, ex, than, than I expected. That sounds bad, doesn't it? But yeah, when, when I started working on it. In two weeks, I think we'll start Second John. That's the direction I'm leaning at this point. You pray about it. I'll pray about it. We'll see what God does next week, next Sunday. We're going to have a special communion service together. I am looking forward to being able to have have that time and have that have that service. We're going to have Zach and Hannah share with us a little bit about what God's been doing in their life, and then we're going to have oh half a dozen or so. Of the folks from our church share with you about uh, something about about their walk with Christ. I just I'm I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a great great time together. Um, let's pray now for this service, and then we'll get into our last section in John, First John. Father, thank you for your uh, just your continued patience with us, your continued presence with us. I'm so grateful that you are a God we can depend on. As Lauren was singing, that we are wonderfully made, knit together by you. You've, you've not turned your back on us. Those times when we feel alone is not because of you. It's either because we have chosen to shut ourselves off or we're listening to the lie of the devil. But I pray that today we would listen to your word and your truth. That you would continue to teach us and continue to transform us to be the people you want us to be. Because that's really what it's all about. It's not what my ideas have fallen so far short of what you have wanted. And thank you, Father. I, I believe you have prevailed and will continue to in my life. Help that to be true of all of us. Teach us. Guide us from your word and your truth, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to be in First John chapter 5 again in Pew Bible, page 1022. If, unless you have it in some other way, you go ahead. We're going to go through this in smaller sections. Helps us. It helps me. I hope it helps you. It helps me be able to, to connect more with uh, the words that we just read. And that's really what I want you to do. I want you to be able to connect with what God's saying uh, here. So First uh, John, we're going to drop down to verse 14 is where we're going to begin as we plan on finishing up this book today verse 14 it says now this is the confidence we have before him whenever we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if we know that he hears us whatever we ask we know that we have what we asked him for now we're going to pause right there because i want you to realize this is not this, this verse this is not the golden giveaway here this is not what he's talking about. You know, these are not the golden giveaway verses where we ask and God gives us everything we ask for. Some people uh, try to separate and try to take, you know, verse 15, uh, you know, and try to separate it from verse 14 and even from the rest of the Bible. And you really can't do that. Now, if you look at the immediate context here, you know, verse 14 and 15, if you look at the immediate context and even the larger context of this letter, and then if you look at the larger context of the whole Bible, uh, you will see they all agree with whatever it, what it says here. Whenever we ask anything according to his will. You see, there's the key phrase we sometimes skip over. According to his will. When we ask according to his will, he hears us, it says, and will give us whatever we ask. Now, 
this is very consistent with what Jesus has taught all through Scripture. In, uh, as in the Gospels, and you read in the Gospel of John, it says, whatever you ask in my name, as Jesus is talking to, the, to his disciples there, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Again, you cannot separate that from the context. He says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Notice what he says right there, you know, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That what, what we're asking and what we ask, when we ask and, and when what we're asking is, is resulting in the Father being glorified in the Son, he says, then he will do it. The answers to our prayers are to glorify God, not, you know, not to increase our standing. It's not to increase us at all. That's not the point. Sometimes our prayers lean that way. We lean, you know, as, as, as if God owes it to us or that he should give us whatever we ask, regardless of what it is, because almost as if we know better. This is not what he's saying here. He's saying that these prayers, you know, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, that whatever we ask, that as he answers it, it will bring glory to God. Now, God, he, you know, he loves to answer your prayers just as just as a father, you know, loves to help his children. If you remember earlier in this letter, he, he talked about the reality that when we come to a relationship with God, when we come to a relationship with him through Christ, that we are God's child. We are children of God. We are part of the family. We are, you know. You know, some families are strong, some families aren't. And some of you came from strong families and, and continued that tradition. Some of, you, some of us came from a little more messed up families, uh, you know, but we have strong families. And some of us have just never had strong families, period. You know, and there's, there's, there can be a lot of dysfunction in a family, you see. But what we need to realize is what he's talking about. When he's talking about the reality of, of our relationship to God. He's talking not about these messed up families that we sometimes live in. He's talking about the reality that God is a father who loves to help his children, who loves to help his children grow, to help his children be all they can be. But again, you've heard me say it before, but you need to remember, God will never lead you astray. You know, he will, he will never lead you astray. He will never help you to sin. God will not help you to walk away from himself. He will not help you to, to leave him and abandon him. He will, you know, he will not help you destroy yourself. God, you know, he always answers according to his character, according to his will, according to his greater plan. And his greater plan is that all would come to salvation, not that you would be destroyed, not that you would walk away, not that you would walk in sin. That is not his plan. His plan is not that people sin. His plan is people not sin. And he will help you towards that if, with anything you need in order to not sin. And you say, well, you know, God didn't, you know, God didn't help me and I sinned anyway. No, you chose to do that, you see. And what, he's, what he tells us here, you know, it's... It, we need to remember God's plan is often, is often, well, I don't know if often is the word we want to hear, and I don't know that that's totally accurate. God's plan is sometimes very different than our plan. His plan is very different than our plan. So I was getting ready for church this morning. I was, I was thinking, man, you know, I've been a pastor, this was kind of a little bit surprising for me, but um, 
I've been a pastor for 40 years now. But I still see myself as a millwright, as a welder, who just happens to be following God and what he wants. I don't know if that's good or bad or right or wrong, but I just thought to myself, for pity's sakes, I've been a pastor for 40 years, you know. I did that welding and millwright work for about eight years. (laughs) And, um, you know, but God's plans are often much different than our plans or sometimes even our desires. You know, we often think, we, we often think uh, you know, of prayer as asking for what we want. But true prayer, true prayer is asking for what God wants. That's what true prayer is, asking for what God wants. That we pray according to his will. That's what the, that's what the verses said there. <clears throat> when you ask anything, what? According to his will. True prayer is asking for what God wants. That if you pray according to his will, it says... You know, that, that he heard us. Now, when, you know, when the, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, and, uh, you know, and what we often refer to as the Lord's Prayer, and he, he said, you know, they said, teach us to pray. Part of what Jesus said, taught them to pray was what? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done here. Your will be done with me here on this earth. That's part of what he taught them to pray. Even Jesus himself prayed that way. You know, when, when, it, when it was probably the lowest point of his humanity, you know, his, he was here, he was fully human and he was fully divine. You know, the, 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 you know, the, the, the hypostatic union. Pastor Kent will explain that to you after the service if you want to. It's not a problem at all. But, you know, the, the whole reality of, of, of what, what he's done, and as he was struggling there, it says that a second time he went again to pray and he said, My father, if this cannot pass, from, pass unless I drink it, your will be done. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. A promise that very quickly comes to mind for us is found in, in Psalm 37, verse 4. It says, you know, take the light in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desire. <clears throat> we need to look at, at that in context, in the context of what it says. Here's what it says, the verse before and the verse after. Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Notice what he says. He says, here, trust in the Lord. Take delight in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. You know, we focus on getting the desires of our heart. Well, God said he'd give me the desires of my heart. I, I agree, but if you look at it here, the verses focus on this deep commitment to, this deep relationship, this growing, deepening, strengthening relationship with God. And, and again, I don't think this is a promise at all to give us whatever our little old heart desires, you know, because you're, well, we won't, but anyway. I, I think what he's saying here, I think what he's, what he's telling us here, what he's saying here is that when we put God first, when we trust in the Lord, take the light in the Lord, commit our way to the Lord, when we trust in Him, when we put God first, He will give us, he will implant within us his desires. 
that what we had as desires which fell far short or in a different realm of what he wanted, that he will take those, he will transform those, and he will replace those with his desires, that he will put them in there. He will make our desires align with his own. It's not the other way around. You know, he, he will give us new desires in line with his will. It's not that we are molding God's desires. He is molding our desires. When you take the light in the Lord, He will give those desires into your heart. Prayer is not getting God to change His mind. More and more I am convinced that, you know, that, that prayer is, is having God align my mind with His will. The more we grow, you know, the more we grow in our relationship with Christ, uh, you know, the, the, the more our prayers will be in line with his will. And the, and the more we will understand that his will, is, his will is far better than our desires. I enjoyed, I enjoyed, you know, doing millwright and welding work. I did. I liked building things, and that was part of what it was, tearing things apart, Fixing them, rebuilding them, you know, and, and I worked on, on, heavy, on heavy machinery. When I say heavy machinery, I don't mean, you know, like bulldozers and things like that. I mean, I worked on stuff like from the steel mills, uh, you know, that, that helped them with the making and the processing of steel. And then, and then we, our business transitioned a little bit. The company I worked for transitioned a little bit, and I would go out to companies and uh, rebuild machines for them right there on, on you know, on site. And and weld and fabricate things for them, you know, that they needed to. to and I, I just really, you know, I really enjoyed that. But you know what? The last 40 years, God has, God has taken me places and done things in me that never even entered my radar screen. I never thought I would be living in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I've been living here 31 years. I never, I never thought I was going to be anybody's pastor. You know, I, I never, all the things that God has uh, has un, unfolded for me, you know, have been far beyond my. They weren't even on my desire list, and God has given me more than I want. Now, it's not that his will is always easy, because sometimes it's not. You know, sometimes it's not easy. It's not that his will is always fun, because it may not be fun sometimes. Do you think Jesus was having fun when he prayed, you know, when he prayed, you know, Father, if this can't pass unless I drink it, your will be done? That wasn't fun. And it's not that we always understand his will, because we don't. We don't always understand it. You know, but, but his will is always best. His will is always best. Always. Always. There is not a single time where we have a better idea than God. There is not a single time where we have a plan that is, that is better than what God's plan is. There is not a single time in which, in which God's ideas come in second place. His will is always best. Pick up with me, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not uh, bring death, 
he should ask and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin, that doesn't bring death. There is a sin that brings death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is sin that does not bring death. You know, we, we read these verses and we often focus on, you know, what it says there. Uh, there is a sin that brings death. What? <laughs> um, uh, uh, now, in one sense, in one sense, all sin diminishes our relationship with God. And as it diminishes our relationship with God, you know, that, that certainly that, that is a degree of death there, a separation from God. Scripture always speaks of death as a separation. Uh, spiritual death is that separation of, from, uh, of God and man due to sin. And physical death, the separation of the soul, the spirit from the body. You know, and that, that's how it refers to it here. So when he says, you know, there is a sin that brings, that brings death, you know, sin diminishes our relationship with God to some degree. Adam and Eve had a much more intimate relationship with God than we have ever experienced. And it says, you know, when, when God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and, you know, walking in there, right there where they lived, right there where it was, they had a much more intimate, a closer relationship. And, he, and to be able to, to talk with God, you know, and he, he tells them to, to care for they care for everything here, you know, and, and they choose to do their own thing. Don't eat from this one tree. You can have anything else, all this, all, but not that one. Well, then they gave in the temptation, and they can say the devil tempted me all you want to, but the, the fact of the matter is you choose what you're going to do with that temptation. They chose that they were going to ignore God and do what they wanted. Sin affects that relationship with God. You know, it diminishes it. And, and, and this, is, this is part of what we see there all the way from back from the garden. You know, and, and, you know, that's why in the very beginning of the letter, though, because we still struggle with sin. And in the very beginning of the letter, John tells us the importance, the avail- availability of repentance and restoration. You know, that if we confess our sin, he's faithful, righteous, will forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If, if we confess our sin, sin is a mighty big stumbling block. And if we confess, we, we discount, we discount the destruction, we discount the damage sin does to ourselves and others. We discount the damage it does to our relationship with God. You know, it, it, we need to confess our sin. He, all, he already knows about our sin. Well, then why, why do I confess it? Because confession isn't about informing God about our sin. Confession is about us taking ownership and responsibility for what we have done. Because if we don't take ownership and responsibility of it, we continue to do it as if it didn't matter. We just continue on in that sin. The first step here in confession and forgiveness is to admit that you have a sin, that you have sin that needs to be confessed, that you, that needs to be forgiven. And then we can begin to change and we can begin to be changed. Because we realize that we have not done what God says. You know, and we read, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, and we begin to ask, what's, what sin is that? Because I don't want to commit that particular sin. And I've been asked questions, you know, very similar to that. You know, what is it? Because 
I want to avoid that sin. The other ones maybe not so much. But I want to avoid, I want to avoid, what's, what is this one particular sin? Now that he's talking here, and he's talking about a sin that we observe in a brother, you know, and, and he's talking there about someone who has a relationship with Christ, someone we have a relationship with, and we know they have a relationship with Christ. That's what he's talking about here. That, you know, that it's someone we have a relationship with, and we know they have a relationship, you know, with, with Christ Jesus, you know. And it says it's observable because it says you see them do this, you see them committing this sin. It's an observable thing. Uh, the point here is, to restore their fellowship with Christ. The point here is their restoration, you know, to, to get them to that unhindered, that unhindered relationship with Christ. It's a very consistent message throughout Scripture. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will be able to see uh, clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Just as he says here, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, you know, that, that does not, that we, you know, we take it to God. And here he says, you know, there is the first place you go. The first place you go is to God. He says, now, you know, then, then he says you'll move, remove, you'll see clearly to be able to remove the speck from your brother's eye. There's that, that relationship that the very first place we go to is God about this the very first place we go to galatians chapter 6 he says brothers if someone is caught in any wrongdoing you who are spiritual you examine your own position with god first and can you say that i am that person who is spiritual just as you examine your own life first, remove the plank from your own eye before you go and, and help your brother. You come to God first with your own relationship with God and say, God, is there anything between me and you that I'm not seeing? Is there anything between me and you that I need to get cleared up? If someone is caught in wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, Lord, am I, am I, am I, am I, am I walking, am I growing as I should be? You who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit. There's one that's, uh, that I need to work on because I can, I, I can be uh, less than gentle sometimes. You know, I, I think being clear is a good thing and sometimes being, you know, that, I use that phrase and sometimes it's, you know, uh, being brutal. Would I intentionally be brutal? I'd like to say no, but, you know, the reality is sometimes we are. Sometimes we do want to be brutal. We do want to slap somebody upside the head. And if we can't do it physically, we're going to do it with our words. You know, let me give you a good one. Restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves that you won't also be tempted. The goal is their restoration, not their destruction. The goal is their restoration, not our feeling better. You got that? It's not our feeling better. It's their restoration. That's the goal here. Notice where we're to start with our own relationship with God. We go to God first before we go to our brother. Even in the first John passage, if any, in verse 16, if anyone sees a brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask God 
and God will give him life. He should add, you add, you are asking God and God will give him life. But our eye is drawn to that phrase of sin that does not bring death. <laughs> just tell me what that sin is so I can avoid it. You know, just tell me what that sin is. Now, for, look at the passage. You know, in the passage, it says, a, it, it, you know, it says, first of all, you know, it says a sin leading to death, not the sin leading to death as if it's only one. You may not find this comforting. But biblically, I don't believe I, I don't believe it's limited to one particular sin. I don't think it's limited to one particular sin. Uh, one, you know, that we don't do this, and and, and we look a little bit further. Verse sixteen, you know, a little later in verse sixteen, it says there is sin that brings death. Sin, not a sin here, even, but sin. There is sin. That, but what about that unpardonable sin? Jesus mentions the unpardonable sin, you know, in um, Matthew chapter 12. And for some reason, this isn't working now. So get me the next slide up there, Matthew chapter 12. You want Caleb to come help you? There we go. Matthew chapter 12. Anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Notice there's only two choices here. We've talked about this earlier. We talked about this earlier. You know, there's only two choices. There is no sitting on the fence. Why do I say that? Well, because he says, anyone who is not with me is against me. Anyone who does not, anyone who does not gather with me scatters. He only gives us two choices there. He only gives us two choices. Because of this, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy. But the click, blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Uh, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. You know, the, 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 un, the unpardonable sin here that, you know, unrepentant, it's the unrepentant sin of denying God. You know, you're denying God. You know, if you're only, you know, if you're denying God, you really, you really don't care about sin. When people come to me and say, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Well, I think if you have... Um, you know, God's heart in your heart, you're not, you're not going to care. But I think it's the same thing that Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians passage. Uh, we sometimes refer to this in communion. He says, Therefore, whoever eats of the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself. In this way, he should eat the bread and drink of the cup. Uh, for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body and eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. And he doesn't mean snoozing in church. He means you've died. He says that's why many have died. If we were properly evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we may not uh, be condemned with the world. You know, if you come in an unworthy way, doing what? Without recognizing, without recognizing who God is. Without recognizing Jesus. With, you, know, without, you, you can have those words, but he's not talking about words. He's talking about the, the life and the way you're living. And he says, and that's why many of you have, uh, have become sick. And that's why many of you have died. 
because you've not been recognizing who God is. You know, some say that they have a relationship with Christ and then they begin to ignore sin. They begin to, you know, repeatedly, continually ignoring God, continually being in sin and ignoring sin and ignoring God. We sometimes think that sin isn't a big deal. We think sometimes that sin isn't a big deal. We know it's sin. We just don't want to stop. I think, that, I, I think that the sin that leads to death is the sin of not repenting about the sin you know about and yet you choose to ignore. It is, it, there's your sin for you. It can be anything that you are doing that you know is sin and you are not repenting of it. You are choosing to ignore it. We need to realize, <clears throat> excuse me, we need to realize all sin is a big deal. That's what it says. All unrighteousness is sin. Not some of it. Not just the ones we think are, are a big deal. All unrighteousness is sin. When we, live, when we live like sin is no big deal, we're saying that our definition of sin is better than God's definition of sin. When we think that the sin we're committing is no big deal, we're living like our definition is, is better and we're calling God a liar. John has already addressed this earlier in his letter, in, in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, if we, have, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Chapter 4, verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother, he has seen, cannot love God. His brother, he has seen, cannot love God, he has not seen. Chapter 5, earlier in chapter 5, the one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony with him. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. The one who does not believe God, the one who does not believe that what God says is sin is sin, has made God a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given about his son. The sin that leads to death is the sin of not repenting of the sin that you know about and yet you choose to ignore because we are rejecting God and we are calling God a liar. And when we see a brother in sin, we need to talk to God about it first before we say anything to this sinning brother. We need to examine ourselves first, and after we pray about it, then we are to act in accordance with our prayer and do what we can to restore our sinning brother. Verse 18 picks up with the same thought. Notice what he says there. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God, the eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The English Standard Version you see on the screen there I, I think is a much better way. It's much clearer. It gives a full meaning of the words. Um, some talk about a literal word-for-word trans -word translation and, and stuff. Word-for-word, um, -word, this isn't a word-for-word, -word, but this gets the meaning of the word better than the English, than the, than the Holman Christian Standard Translation. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. You know, does not keep doing that. 
It's not saying that someone with a relationship with God never sins. We do. That's why he wrote earlier in the letter what we looked at, you know, in chapter 1, verse 9. He wrote, you know, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and, and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because we do sin. But what he's saying is that someone with a relationship with God does not keep on intentionally sinning. Someone with a relationship with God does not ignore sin. They, don't, they, they do not keep intentionally sinning. They do not live like sin doesn't matter. Someone with a relationship with God doesn't live like sin doesn't matter. Someone with a relationship with God has a spirit living in them, you know, and they respond just as a spirit when he prompts and teaches us. But the one who is born of God, God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Following God's word and the direction of God's spirit in our life keeps us from sin. You want to you want to stay away from sin. You want to you, you want to avoid that. Then follow God's word. Follow the direction of God's spirit in your life, and that will keep you from sin. God has given us His His word to help guide us, to help us know Him better, to help us know His heart, to help us know His will, to know His presence. He's given us you know His word for all of these things. He's also given us His spirit. He mentions this. He talks about this earlier in in the gospel or in the, in the letter here. His spirit to be with us and in us, to guide us into all truth, particularly when his word seems silent on the matter. His word is not silent on anything. And sometimes, you know, it, it may not say, you know, that, that thou shalt not, uh, you know, uh, fill in the blank there, you know, that thou shalt not, uh, well, people have uh, smoked cigarettes, so shall not, uh, you know, drink alcohol. And it, it doesn't say those things. It gives us some direction, certainly. But, but when God's word, when we think that God's word is silent on a matter, you see his spirit comes in and gives us direction. But remember, God's word and God's leading of his spirit, they will never contradict each other. The leading of God's spirit is always in agreement with God's word. It's always in agreement with God's word. These people who say, you know, that God, you know, God told me to kill all these people. And we say, well, they're crazy. What about when we say, well, you know, God told me to leave my husband, leave my wife. God told me to lie in this particular instance. God told me, you know, not, God, I didn't tell you those things. God never contradicts his word. He, he understands, he knows, his, his, the leading of the Spirit is always in line with his word. Verse 19 highlights, you know, the last part of verse 18, you know, that we're focusing on, on and following God, not giving in to sin. He says, then the evil one has no power over you. Paul covers this pretty well in Romans chapter 6. There's going to be a lot of verses on, uh, up here. We'll pause a little bit as we go along. Um, verse, Romans 6, verse 6, he says, For we know that our old self, that's the person that we were before we came to know Christ, our old self, the one we were before we came to know Christ, he was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body, literally over that body of sin that, that we were before we came to know Christ, that it may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, uh, since a person who has died is freed from sin's claim. The person who has died is free from sin's claim. 
And now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. You see, we are freed when we come to Christ and we come into a relationship with him. It says, and then when we come to that place, we are freed from sin. It goes on, verse 17. No, you had it there. Verse 17. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were transferred to. And having been liberated from sin... Having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves uh, to moral impurity and to a greater uh, and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness instead of giving... Before you used to give the parts of your body over to the enemy for his tools. Now, instead of doing that, now, quit doing that. Quit giving them over to the enemy. Instead, you give, them, you, give them over, you give them over and offer them as slaves for righteousness. You give them over to God. You begin following God with, with what you're doing. Instead of giving them to the enemy, he says, which results in your sanctification. Verse 21. So what fruit was produced then from the things you're now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. But now, since you have been liberated... You've been liberated from sin, and since you have been liberated from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You have been liberated, he says, <coughs> liberated from sin, and the end now is eternal life. It goes on in Romans chapter 8. Therefore... Uh, no condemnation now exists for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. Has set you free from the law of sin and death. God has set you free from the power of the evil one, so you are no longer obligated to sin. Do you understand that? You are no longer obligated to sin. The evil one can tempt you, but he has no power over you. He has no power over you. Don't go back under his power. Don't put yourself there. He may put, you know, he may put trouble around you, but he has no right to your allegiance. He has no right to your allegiance anymore. He might try to put roadblocks in your way, but he cannot stop you. He may try to discourage you, but he has no claim on you. When we look what it says there in First John, when we come to know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, then follow him. Follow God. You know, he is the true God and the eternal life. Take a minute. Look at look at verses 18, 19 and 20. Each one of those verses start out with the phrase, we know that. It says, we know that. As he's wrapping up his letter, John reminds his readers, reminds us, you know, of three things that, we, that he has repeatedly written about. First, we know that God's people do not continue to habitually sin. We know that. We know they do not continue to habitually sin. We have been and are being changed the more and more into the likeness of Christ himself. We know that, his, that we do not continue to habitually sin. And we know that when we have a relationship with God, we are in God and not of the world. 
We are in God and not of the world. Those are the only two choices. He's brought this up over and over again. We enter into a unique position, a unique relationship as his child, a full member of his family. And he said, we know that Jesus has come. He has given us, he has given us understanding to know him. We don't need any special level of knowledge. This is part of what he was writing against. The beginning of Gnosticism, the beginning of Docetism, where they said you needed a special knowledge and you needed to have a certain thing and hit a certain level, a uh, spiritual level, to be able to open up this other knowledge. And like these, like a, a lot of these uh, video games, you know, you need to get to a certain level and then bing, 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 bing all these other things open up he's saying you, you, you don't you don't need that he says you don't need to have any special level of knowledge here you know to know jesus who is the truth and leads us into all truth this is what he says when we come to a relationship with him we are in him and not in the world in him and not in the world we have a new way to live we have a new place to live in him John closes his letter, and it seems a little abrupt to us sometimes, with a warning, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves, that indicates, uh, you know, a personal responsibility and a personal effort on our part. That, uh, you know, that there is an effort expected of God's people as we move forward in this relationship with Christ. If you're going to keep yourselves, you're putting forth that effort to stay in Christ, to be in Christ, not giving yourself over to the enemy, not giving yourself over to the one who wants to destroy you, but instead giving yourself over and over and over and over again to God. You know, that, you, you, that effort there that goes, you know, he says, keep yourself from idols. An idol, anything that plagues, takes the place of God in your life, anything that takes that place of leadership, anything that takes that place of worship, you know, anything that in your life, any, anything false or counterfeit notion, you know, that, that, that uh, you know, of God that leads people to a perversion of the, of the truth. Verse 21 summarizes that thrust, the thrust of the entire letter, really. He challenges everyone who reads this letter to choose, choose who you're going, you know, who you're going to follow. Choose who you would worship. The God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ and all that he is is a false God manufactured by human knowledge and human reasoning. Which one are you going to follow? John very specifically, you know, thinking about the idolatry of fashioning, you know, of fashioning someone's own understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And they come up with a different idea you know, of who he is that eliminates, diminishes the atonement and what he has done for us. And it comes only through that. Forgiveness comes only through the crucifixion of Christ. You know, and unfortunately, it's not only false religions, but it's false beliefs within those who are in the church. And that's who he's writing to. Anything that diminishes the truth about Jesus either in their words or in their actions. Don't give anyone or anything first place in your life that belongs to God. Don't follow anything or anyone instead of following God. Don't give in to sin, but follow God. Always. Always. Don't give in to anything that leads you away from him, but follow God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us the opportunity to follow you, that you have given us the opportunity to live for you and to live with you. 
even as we learn and understand more and more of what that means, you don't turn us away, you don't beat us down, you want to lift us up, you want to raise us up, you want, you, your direction for us is always up and closer to you, closer to being more of the people you want us to be, closer of being, uh, of being those who, who say no to sin and yes to you, who turn from the temptations of the evil one and turn to you, that we find our strength in you, that we, that we yield our will to your will always, that we seek after what you want and not after what we want, but that you mold and transform our desires to be more and more in line with you and your desires, your will and your direction for our life. Guide us toward that, Lord. Don't ever let us substitute anything or anyone for the place that you should have in our life and our being and in all that we do and are. And when we pray that you would be glorified in us, we really mean that. We know that it may certainly take some changing and molding and transformation on our part, but Lord, to follow you is there is no better way to live. Don't ever let us give in and think that there is. Strengthen us to be yours. Draw us deeper into your heart, we pray, that we might live for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.